Hey there, how's it going? This is James Tripp. This is episode 19 of Agents of Everything. And in this episode, we're doing something a little bit different from usual. I am interviewing somebody. We are in conversation with a gentleman named Steve Chandler. Now, if you have followed my work, my output on YouTube or anywhere else in the world for any period of time, you will likely have heard me mention Steve Chandler. Steve was somebody who mentored me, coached me, and taught me a very profound system for engaging with the world back in 2012, 2013. I worked with Steve one-on-one for about a year, and uh, the work absolutely changed my way of being in the world, the way I show up, the way I engage, the way I create all manner of things. So it's changed my life, but it also continues to filter through and change the lives of the people that I coach as well, because so much of what I got from Steve uh, continues to evolve through me and out into the lives of my clients. So I'm very, very thankful and grateful to Steve for that. In this conversation, we are diving into a number of interesting areas. We're looking at living consciously, living from the eye that chooses. This is a central tenet of Steve's philosophy. We're looking at the origins of this, how Steve came to this. So much in the personal development world is about the unconscious mind and our patterning and this kind of thing. And a lot of what Steve does cuts right through that to this central place of power, the eye that chooses. So we're looking at that. We're looking at how Steve came to that in his own life because he's got a very colorful life and wasn't always necessarily in the driving seat of it. So that's something that he learned and developed. So we get a little of the history of how that came to Steve. We're also looking at the idea of distinctions, how distinctions create choices and how Steve renders up a lot of what he does in terms of shifting minds, in terms of these distinctions, powerful set of distinctions. Uh, you'll have heard me using distinctions a lot as well. I have no doubt. We're also looking at the origins of that. How did Steve come to, to this method of distinctions? Because it's something that I've not encountered anywhere else uh, and has been an incredibly powerful thing. We're getting into mind-shifting communication, some of Steve's philosophy on what it takes to be a good change catalyst to help people shift their minds, but also looking at the other side, the, the client side. How is it that a person needs to be open, needs to listen if they are to get true change from a uh, potentially transformative experience? So we're looking at that. And that we're also diving into some peripheral elements. Steve's a prolific author. I think he wrote his first book, age 49. He's going to be 80 this year. He's retiring this year, but you'll see he's still as sharp as ever and perhaps wiser than ever. Um, and we're going to be diving into how Steve has approached creating as an author and in other areas of his life as well, but also getting around things like what people call writer's block. That's a story they live into, but finding methods where you can get back to that level of choice so you can choose to create rather than waiting for the inspiration. So there's a lot in this episode. I hope you do get a lot from it. There's so much more we could have explored, but didn't have the time to do so. But maybe, just maybe there'll be a part two. We'll see how it goes. I'm going to say before we dive in, if you are listening to this episode on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to it and you get value from it, please do give it a like. Please do give it a boost, a review, a positive review. And please do share the episode with anybody that you feel may get value from it as well. And uh, I welcome questions. If you're not signed up to the Substack, which is the place this podcast goes out, Agents of Everything Substack, please do sign up there. Please do ask the questions there. They don't have the best notification system, but I'm looking to stay on top of all the questions and comments going forward. So please do do that. 
I'm also still running currently, although I'm not sure the shape of the future of this, I'm still running the Agents of Everything Nexus. And uh, that is a monthly one, not one-to-one. -one, it's a monthly group call where you can show up in person, and ask me questions, this kind of thing. And there's a way of finding your way through to that if you want to support the development of the podcast going forward. All right, let's dive into this conversation with Steve Chandler. Hi, James. How are you? I am great. How about you? Fantastic. I reckon it's a decade, slightly more. Yeah. Since we last spoke, a decade. You're looking good. You haven't changed. Thank you. Neither of you. Well, you're younger. Still doing the Tai Chi, I guess. You still doing that? Yeah, a little bit here and there. Good stuff. Listen, Steve, I don't know why I've reached out to you. Maybe it's because it's 10 years, but I do know this is recording already. So if you're happy for us to dive straight in. Okay. I do know that 2013, I think it was something like that. I did about a year's worth of coaching with you. And it absolutely changed my whole way of being in the world and way of seeing the world. And I guess it's been 10 years and it's been percolating through more and more. And so much comes back to me. And there's so much that I shared that came from you with uh, people on my podcast, my YouTube channel, this kind of thing. So I thought, well, it kind of makes sense to get you on and get your take on some of this stuff. So I'd love to just explore some of the things that you shared with me that made a really big difference and see what kind of energy or light that you could put on them that might unfold out into goodness for people who might be watching this on a podcast. Uh, is that good with you for us to just kind of explore freeform oh, like that? So first thing I'll say, Steve, just from my own perspective, when I first started working with you, I was strictly kind of like an NLP guy and a hypnosis guy. So I saw the world very much through an NLP set of lenses. And there was an idea that, that I was sort of living inside of that I didn't necessarily realize that everything is about unconscious patterning. And if we want to change ourselves, we have to get deep into our unconscious mind and we have to like find these patterns. We have to do all this repatterning, reprogramming, whatever you want to call it. Now, I remember when I started coaching with you very, very early on, there was something you said to me that just, it was like a cold glass of water in the face. You said something like this. You said, stop identifying with your personality. Stop identifying with your patterns. Stop identifying with who you think you are and start identifying with the eye that chooses, right? And I remember this, what? You know, the eye that chooses, what? What? Because, you know, I've been living in this hypnosis land that was all about unconscious forces. And there was this story, which is you can't do anything with willpower or anything like that, which I understand that willpower isn't always the smartest choice going head to head. But this idea, the eye that chooses, this was like a, a light going on for me. Um, and I think it's a powerful theme that runs through all of your work, at least the era of your work that I know, this eye that chooses. So I'm curious about that. That was a light switch going on for me. Was that a light switch that went on for you at some point in your life about the eye that chooses? If so, I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, absolutely. There, there was a historical me, little old me that, that I identified with that had all kinds of personality problems and character flaws and past micro traumatic experiences that lived in my subconscious. And it was a, 
a murky, complex, pathological system that was having a hard time dealing with the world. And that, um, that illusion that, that I was only my historical story was, uh, what was actually in the way of me having the freedom to choose the life I wanted and to choose in the moment, in the present moment, who I want to be and what action I want to take. But I don't have to dive deep into my past. Now, there's a wonderful place for NLP and hypnosis. They're both wonderful systems. But I think our work together was getting you into action, creating the life you wanted, which can be done in the moment. And it took me a long time to figure that out. So I figured that out basically when I recovered from alcohol and drugs and I went through a recovery program and for the program to work, they had a system with steps. It was a 12 step program to work that system. You didn't need to have to find out how or why, because I'd been to a number of psychologists. Why do I drink? Why do I take drugs? Why do I go into debt? Why do I uh, mess my life up? We've got to find out why, and we've got to discover what's the hidden motivation for all of my dysfunction. And when I went through the recovery program, when I first got there, I said, are we going to find out why I drink? And they said, no, that doesn't matter. If you don't want to drink, this program's for you. It works. All you do is follow the system and leave your ego at the door. It is a spiritual program, but you don't have to subscribe to any particular religion or have any kind of orthodoxy that you try to believe in. You simply leave your ego at the door when you come to meetings and you acknowledge that your own ego, your own little eye, not the eye that chooses, which is a universal eye, the little eye, the eye that becomes a victim is not needed for this program. You just have to acknowledge there's a power greater than yourself, your little self, and that that power, once access, once it becomes part of your life, will support you in not drinking and having the life you want. So all you have to do, keep coming back, work the program, don't just argue with it intellectually, work it. And if you work it, it works. And it did. And so that was the first place, James, where I saw, oh, so I'm not just a collection of all these bad memories and traumas. Mm -hmm. That's in the past. Mm -hmm. That's gone. It's gone. Unless I want to keep bringing it back right. with all my inaccurate memories of it. It's kind of interesting. I've just been reading this book at the moment on something called narrative therapy. Hmm. Uh, and one of the, the distinctions that they make is, he doesn't quite put it in this term, but I like the way that, that I'm going to put it now, is uh, what he would call a kind of essential self-concept, an essentialist self-concept versus an intentional self-concept. So the essentialist thing is, well, like, what's true about me? You know, what are the deep truths about who I am? And he kind of points out that a lot of therapy is orientated around this, finding these deep truths and working with these, who am I? What makes me, me? But the narrative therapy approach, what was interesting to me, it's all about 
looking back at your life, but in terms of what was important to you, what your intentions were, what your aspirations were, what your purposes were in the moments of your life. So it starts to kind of rebuild a history. It has got a historical element, but it rebuilds a history around agency and intentionality, not around these sort of hidden deep forces. That was coming to my mind when you were talking about that. Um, a couple of things in what you were saying now I'm curious about. First of all, though, inside of that program that you were talking about, the 12-step program, obviously you got a lot from that. Was the theme of choice explicitly kind of unpacked? Is it like, you know, you have a choice in every moment as to whether you go with the program? Was that a really big central piece or is it just kind of more implicit in the fabric of it? I, I think that was implicit. Uh, it kept coming up because some of those steps were very challenging and you had to be very thorough. Um, but it was implicit. It was like, um, when you're ready to move to the next step, you'll make a choice to move to the next step. And that'll be a choice. Mm. Don't get stuck with trying to find out inside your psychology, whether you're ready or not, just choose and move on and get into action and get into, uh, like you said, I like, I like what you said about the narrative. It's a matter of intention, action, choosing movement and energy and creativity. So. Yeah, it was implicit. It was there. Looking back, I see it was there. And I wrote a book about the choices that I never knew we had. And my clients never knew they had. It was called Crazy Good. And it was a book of choices. And so the whole book is about here are choices that I never knew I had. And that my clients that I work with don't realize they have. You know, it's kind of interesting you bring up Crazy Good. And that idea of choices or distinctions, because that was a huge piece for me as well. I mean, you would often, when you were coaching me, I, I don't know how you coach now, it's 10 years ago, but when you were coaching me at the time, you would, you would hand me these distinctions and, and invite me into these distinctions. And I'm going to read a little bit out of this book that I recently got. It's called Completing Distinctions. And this is right at the beginning, because I've only just started reading this book, and it just seems to be coincidental that that say came up as we having this conversation. It says here, any act of knowing, any knowing act begins with the drawing of a distinction, with the noting of a difference. A boundary is created when a whole is distinguished from a part of itself, as in ecosystem slash species or paragraph slash sentence, family slash child, or when a part of a whole is simply differentiated from another part, as in foreground, background, yesterday, tomorrow, husband, wife. The relationship formed by such acts of demarcation constitute the stuff of mind. Knowing is composed of boundaries imposed. When I read that, what came up for me were all the rich distinctions that you would often offer and coach through. And it almost struck me at the time that it was like a system, that, that set of distinctions. When they sat together, and I don't think you had a systematic way of going through them or anything, but they would just come up as and when. But they would shape a certain sort of consciousness or a certain way of being in the world that was very empowering and still is to me today very, very empowering. So I'm curious about that idea of explicit distinction, this versus this. You know, you yeah. had the owner-victim distinction, which I think you may have changed the languaging around that. I don't know if you have or if you haven't. Um, but things like agreements versus expectations, you know, social self versus professional self. 
Do you know what it reminds me of, Steve? It reminds me of learning like an esoteric form of martial arts, like something like Wing Chun Kung Fu, and you've got all these different hands, methods, and, and they fit together into a system that enables you to act in a certain way. I'm curious about how you came to the power of distinctions. It was an effort to make things simple. What I found was it would never help when I worked with people or with companies, I did seminars, when the content delivered was complicated, hmm. hard to understand, hard to get your mind around. It had a lot of vague stuff in it. It had, it had things that were, were hard to relate to. And I thought, I want to keep my work as simple as humanly possible. So when you have a distinction, let's say I have a distinction that I work with called testing versus trusting. Mm. Now that distinction, I would have a client come to me and this was also something I used to do who believes I have to learn to trust that doing this will work for me. I have to trust that this relationship will work out, or I have to trust that this company I've joined will be good for me. And what I thought was people would get lost in that forever and they'd be trying to trust things and they wouldn't be doing anything. Mm. They wouldn't be taking any action, interacting with life, enjoying their life, playing in the field of life. They would be shut down, trying to trust things. And so I created an essential, why don't you test it? Forget about trusting. If you test it, and for example, I had to test the fact that if I went into the deep end of a swimming pool, I would not drown. I knew in theory I wouldn't because I saw other people in there and people would talk to me about buoyancy, but I still feared the water. And I thought, I've got to learn how to trust that it'll hold me up. No, jump in. Use the strokes we taught you. You'll never trust it ahead of time. Hmm. You can try and try and try. But if you test it, jump in. If you sink, we'll save you. If you test it enough times, trust will show up by itself. Hmm. Trust comes from testing. It doesn't come from trying to trust ahead of time. So. The distinction testing, do you want to test it or do you want to stay stuck in trying to trust it? That distinction is very simple for people. Test trusting. Do you want an expectation of your employer or do you want to create an agreement with the employee? So those distinctions were designed to keep things really simple for people to understand and act on. It gave them access to action right away. Hmm. Whereas other concepts are kind of cloudy and they float around and people don't quite grasp them. I had problems with the 3P movement, which I love and I'm a fan of mm. three principles, but I never, even to this day, was able to understand the difference between universal mind, universal consciousness, thought, the definitions of each one seem to overlap each other. Yeah. yeah. By the end, I thought, okay, great. What do I, how do I use, where's my access to a better life? Hmm. I knew if I, for my life to work, I had to keep things simple. And if I were to coach people, 
for them to have access to new ways of acting in the world, it had to be simple freedom of choice. It couldn't be some new vague concept they were trying to grasp. Yeah. And I think that's something that to me, those, those distinctions. And like, if you, you know, somebody said to me, James, how many distinctions did you learn from Steve Chandler? I'd be like, well, I don't know, but here's some, you know, here's some of the biggies for me, but I always had a sense and it's like more like a felt sense that they fit together. They're not just, ah, there's this one and there's this one and there's this one. They fit somehow, but the way they fit is emergent. Like by engaging with them, it comes out through your being. And I think you touched on some of what it creates, that willingness to get into the world, engage with the world, play in the world, explore in the world, be in the world. And yeah. um, there's a distinction that I have around self-development, which is what I call black path versus white path. Now, this is a bit more abstract than perhaps your distinctions, but the white path is the path of life. And the black path is the path of death. Now, it's not the death, it's not physical death. It's the death of illusion. It's the death of, of being attached to things. So like for me, things like three principles, that kind of thing, they're black path. They're about letting go. They're about releasing. They're about, whereas a lot of the distinction stuff for me was white path stuff. It brought you into the world, into a mode of engagement, into creation, into living. Um, so I really love, uh, I love that system whether or not you intended it to be a system, to me, it very much became a system. And it's one that has continued to provide. And each one of those distinctions, once they're there, what I found for myself is they enrich across time. You know, once the initial distinction's made, which you would help me make that distinction, it sort of stayed in my mind and, and experiences of life and moments of choosing have enriched those distinctions and deepened them. I think you're right that they all tend to harmonize and they tend to all come from a central distinction that I call creating versus reacting. Mm. I can collapse into my little old me, small self, separate entity, not really connected to the rest of the world or the universe. And that has me in victim. That has me trying to trust that has me reacting to my own thoughts and feelings reacting to everything, hmm. or I can, I can make the simple choice into creating. And I learned that from my coach, I would bring him a problem, Steve Hardison. I'd bring him a problem and rather than solving the problem, he would listen to the problem. He would say, okay, that's a neutral situation. You're calling it a problem. That's that's up to you. You can call it a problem if you want, but I see it as a simple, neutral situation. Given that situation, what do you want to create? Mm. Well, my problem is I have debt. I have debt to the government, tax money I owe. Okay. Given that that's the situation, what would you like to create? Instead of, oh, how do we solve this? So he would always move me out of reaction to what I was a victim of, or what I was struggling with into what would you like to create? Mm. And every time we did that, we would then access greater creativity, greater imagination. We'd brainstorm and come up with multiple options and ideas. But when we stayed over there in problem victim, the problem had all the power. I had none of the power. 
Yeah, that's that's the way I always seen it. Like I'm always curious, and this has left me with this set of lenses when I'm working with clients myself. When they're speaking, I'm always kind of running it. You know, where do they have the power organized in their life? Is it organized out there, or is it organized within them? And a lot of the time, of course, people have power organized out there. So, like a lot of the job is to get them back in touch with where they do have power, where they do have choice. And uh, I learned a lot about that from you because, that, again, that wasn't part of the stuff I learned from NLP. It wasn't about you and your agency. I mean, this conversation will go out on my Agents of Everything podcast because the idea of agency is a really important idea that you opened up in my mind. So I'm deeply appreciative of that. Um, I'm curious about that. A, I have a question about communication and your choices around how you communicate things, but I shall come to that in a moment. Your you originally used to call that distinction the owner-victim distinction. Yes. And now you've got creator-reactor. It's a slightly different rendering. I'm curious about the choice to change how you had that distinction rendered up. Um, I still use owner-victim where it applies. Owner-victim worked a lot in high achievement, high productivity corporations, mm -hmm. sales teams, they wanted to produce and create. But the reason I also added in and expanded it to reaction creation was it had a wider context. It somehow, it had a more positive feel because telling someone they're a victim in their thoughts, I'm not talking about actual victims of yeah. crimes or prejudice or racial bias. There are actual literal victims all over the place, mm. victims of war, victims of, I'm talking about the victimization that we create in our own mind. Yeah. That every little thing going wrong, it rains on a day that I wanted to go out and play baseball. And I look at the rain and I say, why me? Hmm. Why on this day? This is the last thing I needed. And I personalize everything as I'm a victim of this. Hmm. And somehow when I moved it to creating, reacting, it opened up a lot more access for a lot more people. Hmm. So I use them both now, but uh, creating, reacting, I liked that one because a lot of people I was working with creative type people and they were writing books or they were painting or doing, making movies. And what do you want to create? Let's stay in creativity. Let's not lapse into reacting to things going wrong. Let's keep creating in the face of everything. Right. Yeah. I've thought about this a lot because I think when I work with you, you probably use more the owner victim distinction for me. And I, yeah. you know, I've, I've seen depending on the context, how this can either like be a very effective because it shakes people up. It's quite, it's an edgier way of putting yeah, it yeah. on oh, a victim. So it can really shake people up, but in a different context, that kind of edginess isn't necessarily appropriate. I mean, a lot of the work that I've done for the last, uh, I've been doing this about six years. I work with a lot of military veterans and they've got a lot of stuff going on and it doesn't always cut it to come in with that distinction in that context. Maybe, you know, right. a little bit more of a, uh, you, you know, a, a C-suite context or something like that, where you can provoke with it. I think it's more provocative, the owner-victim rendering. But I, again, one of the things that I found that if I put it in that rendering, I have to do a lot more education around it, just as you were, 
to point out that it's not about the facts of whether you're a victim of something. It's about the attitude of how you yeah. meet that moment. You know, I could be a victim of mugging and I could have quite a lot of ownership around owning my choices. Okay. You know, that was a terrible thing. I've lost my money. I've lost my wallet. I'm going to spend a few days in hospital. So what would I like to have happen next? You know, what's next? Yes. I can have that just right. What's my next set of choices? The way I've often described this to people, this is a super simplification, is that the owner is somebody who habitually sorts for where they can make a difference in their lives. Whereas yeah. the victim is somebody who's habitually sorting for where they cannot. You exactly. know, everything's a barrier, everything's an obstacle. And, and like, to me, that, I, I think that's the key distinction that you offer, that your book Reinventing Itself is largely based off the fleshing yeah. out of that. And you have some, a couple of phenomenal audios on that distinction. One I particularly like, I think, I think it's, I think it's called reinventing yourself in creating wealth or something. You've probably done so many audios, you forget them. I do. But that one is so good and it's such an empowering distinction. I'm interested in your thoughts about communication and moving minds and these kind of things, because you know, one of the things that was really great for me in coming to work with you is you came from a different world. You weren't an NLP guy and you weren't a hypnosis guy, but at the same time, you're a very powerful communicator, much as NLP that is there to make you a powerful communicator, but that's not the way that you came into this. I know when I first experienced you speaking, which was in Marina Del Rey, you were doing an event with Rich Lipman. I had no idea who you were, none at all. I went along because my friend John said, come check out this rich guy. Well, who's this other guy here? I don't know. But I remember you started to talk about things in particular ways that pulled me into a really different experience of myself and the world around me, what I would call a very different reality tunnel from the NLP one. And it felt different. I could immediately experience different choices. And that made me interested to work with you. And I found that that was a continuous theme. You're a very powerful communicator. I remember you actually said to me, I remember a lot of things you said almost word for word. I remember you said to me once, you said, I'm like Merlin. I change people with my words, right? You're on a riff, but it was true, you know, because I think I was asking you, how come you're doing this? And you mentioned already, you mentioned that choice to simplify that choice to use this distinction structure. So that's telling me, well, there's a guy here who thinks about his communication, you know, just a random communicator and you're a writer as well. So I'm curious, let's see you are like Merlin. Let's see you do change people's minds with your words, right? How have you approached that? How have you developed that skill? I think the most important part of communication is not what is being said so much as how is it being heard? So everything you've described about what has helped you in the distinctions, were you not open to coaching if you had not had a, a really fierce learning mindset already when we started working together, I didn't have to try to tease it out of you or make it safe for you to have an open mind. You already had it. What I was able to speak into was someone who could get it and hear it right away. A lot of the people, especially in companies, they try to communicate with their people. They are okay with what they've said, 
and they pay no attention to how it was heard, mm. how it landed, how it how it tried to make its way through the filter of the person listening. And that's the half of communication people don't take ownership of is, okay, I got what you said to your wife or to your husband or to your coworker. I got the, what you said, it sounds great. How did they hear it? Well, that's not up to me. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Hmm. That's what you're missing. You're not checking in with how it's being heard. You're not allowing the other person to speak back to you and you're not listening deeply. You're simply trying to impose through force your ideas on other people. I think that's true in writing as well. If you don't have the reader in mind, if my 12 year old grandson read this, would he understand it? And if the answer is no. Uh, I'm not putting it in the book. I don't want a book that's hard to understand. What's the point of that? And as a unintended or maybe intended result, they sell more. Hmm. Get more word of mouth when they're easy to understand and apply. So that part of communication, I think, is really important. And uh, you and I both have a music background. I see two of your instruments there. I spent five years as a songwriter and made my living writing lyrics to songs. And those lyrics had to touch the heart and fire the imagination. They couldn't be too poetic or too flowery or too gross or too much of a cliche or they wouldn't land. Hmm. So it was how things are heard that became my obsession. Not so much what to say, but what can you say? What metaphor can you use? What simple choice can you offer? What story can you tell that's really going to land and wake somebody up? You know, I thought you were going to say, you know, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. That's what I thought you were going to say to start with, but you said, no, it's how it's being heard. And I think this is something, I mean, I think when we were working together, I was having this this thing going on where I was going, uh, I don't want to be a hypnotist anymore. I want to be a coach like you, right? Um, I've been a hypnotist for a while. I've been doing hypnotherapy. Mm-hmm. And now I'm, I'm, still, I'm still a hypnotist and I've, and I've fully embraced it. I remember you saying to me, you know, don't leave the hypnosis behind. Transcend and include. I remember you saying that to me. I've got my book now that I wrote. I wrote a book as well. I was trying to do oh. I, I was working with you, but I, I finally got my book written. One of the things I'm always teaching people who are learning hypnosis is to stop focusing on hypnotic language from a delivery perspective and start being aware of, of how it might be to receive that. How does it move you? You know, try it on yourself. Try that metaphor on, try that phrasing on. How does it move you? What does it create in you as you listen to it? And, and to me, and I always see that hypnotic communication is not about information. It's about evocation. You know, what you're looking to bring to life in people. And even though I'm looking at that through the lens of a hypnotist, I'm guessing as a writer, because I find this, I'm not a big writer yet. I intend to write more books, but I'm guessing when you're writing, you've got that sensibility going on. So that's just going to automatically carry through to your speaking to some degree. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. It takes practice and it takes attention and awareness and, um, Deep relaxation. 
Hmm. So then I'm not editing myself at the outset. Now, after the writing is done, I go back and edit and I ask myself, do I understand this? What if someone reading didn't know anything about psychology, philosophy, or coaching or anything, would they understand it? But in the initial writing, I want to be able to have total freedom of expression hmm. and go with intuition and go with impulse and then edit later. And then, yes, there's, there's a reader in mind. One of the things that really helped me, I would always pretend that I was only writing to one person as if I were writing a letter and trying to explain something to them in a simple way, hmm. instead of thinking I'm writing a book for multiple people to read. This is really important. And will the whole world understand this? And that became such a heavy burden to try to write that way. People try to write their books that way and they're editing as they're writing. That's like one foot on the brake, one foot on the gas, instead of letting it flow at the beginning. I would keep one person in mind. If this book helps one person, I'm good. I'm not yeah. trying to write a bestseller that masses will buy. Yeah, that's really interesting to me because I, I remember thinking, I think, did you write your first book at age 47? Is that right? 49. 49, right? Oh, there you go. Even better, because I'm 50, you see. So that means I wrote my first book just before you wrote your first book. So I'm going to take that as a win. And yeah. I remember thinking, because this was 10 years ago, so I was about 40 at the time you are coaching me. I was thinking, well, that's good, because look, look at what Steve created from 49 to, I think you, I, I, I'm not going to get into your age, but I, you know, I was absolutely blown away by what you've done, almost kind of in a, Please don't take this the wrong way, but in a later phase of life, do you see yes. what I mean? I think a lot of people go, oh, you know, I needed to get going really a lot earlier than I have. Um, I think you talk about that in your Nine Lies book on audio, you know, the story of I'm too old or I'm too young, these stories. Yeah. But I have to say for me, the thing that I got my first book done, I did not like the process of doing it. I was doing exactly what you were talking about there, editing while I'm writing, like getting those two states confused. I think the other thing that I was doing is thinking ahead of time. I built the mountain in my mind. This is all the material I have to convey. Yeah. Or, you know, creating a sort of oppression upon myself. So I, I really liked what you're talking about there about writing in flow. Do you have a writing habit? Is it just a thing you do every day? Because, well, that's part of what I do is, or, or do you do it kind of by the project, right? This, project needs to get done. I've done it every way that I can imagine. I've tried all different systems and some work really well. Some didn't work. I've done binge writing where I lock myself in a hotel room and don't come out until I have a certain amount of pages hmm. and I don't have communication with the world. And I, it's just me and, and my notebooks and I write and write and I'll check out two weeks later when I have 40,000 words. Hmm. And I've also done, I write 30 minutes every morning, put it on my calendar. But if I have no system whatsoever and I try to do it, I'll write when I feel like it, or I'll write when I feel inspired. That was the worst system I ever used. Hmm. Cause some of the best writing, when I had my 
I'll write 30 minutes in the morning. Some of the best writing happened when I thought I don't feel like writing and I can't think of anything to say, but I'm doing this system. So I'm going to do a certain amount of words today and they might be terrible, but I'm going to follow the system. And some of those terrible days after the first five or 10 minutes thinking this is trash, this is no good. All of a sudden flow would kick in on its own. Oh, wow. And I'm just hands are flying over the keyboard or if I'm writing in longhand, all of a sudden, wow, I got and and I had told myself ahead of time, I didn't get enough sleep last night. I've run out of ideas. I've got writer's block, but I'm going to write anyway. And all of a sudden the best stuff happened when I looked back. So I've done all kinds of systems. It's always good to have a system. If you have no system or the system of all right, when I moved, it can be a long time before that book ever gets finished. Mm. So do you still change up your system and explore with different systems? Yeah. Yeah. I do. And a lot of whole writing recently, I've co-written a number of books. I wrote a book with a business consultant, a former CEO called the leader and the coach. And that system is really a fun system because he writes a chapter and then I write a chapter in response. Mm. So I get his chapter and he's waiting for mine. So I don't really have time to indulge my feelings and take my emotional temperature Mm. every moment. Do I feel like it? Do I feel like it? Uh, It's just, no, he's waiting for it. So write it. These days, co-writing is what I've been doing. And, And I'll be retiring from coaching this year so I can be a full-time writer. I've never been a full-time writer of books. I was a full-time writer of songs and a full-time journalist, but I've never been a full-time writer of books. So I'm really excited about that next stage of my life where I can wake up as a writer and do my day as a writer and devote the entire day to the book I'm writing. Mm -hmm. That's uh, a thing you said that's Taking your emotional temperature. Yeah. I, I remember you saying that to me, stop taking your emotional temperature before everything that you do. And that was another useful mind shift for me is to go, well, look, you know, instead of having that condition, well, I have to feel like it. I have to be in the right mood. My daughter was saying, yeah. she's, she's just turned a son 16 this month. She was saying, I'm not in the right frame of mind to do that. She was saying, I'm like, yeah, if yeah. You, what if you could choose to do it regardless of the frame of mind? But that's, you know, that's quite a shock for a lot of people to realize, hang on a second, you know, yeah. I can still choose in spite of how I'm feeling to take action yes. in a particular way. So it's, it's a very freeing thing. You know, that was interesting. It's personally interesting to me about you not having finalized a method by which you write, because right. for a long time, I was trying to finalize a way that I coach or a way that I do change work. It's like, I've got to coalesce my way of doing it. And I would sort of be bothered by the fact that I kept doing it differently all the time. You know, sometimes I'd go through a phase of working like this, and sometimes I'd go through a phase, I'd be like, I need to integrate these things and come up with my way. And it was a tyranny upon me yeah. to, to, to believe I had to do that. And in the end, when I went, you know what? I can coach any way I please, or I, you know, I can do this session any way that it just happens to come through. And there's no rule in the universe that says, 
I have to bring all of my skills and expertise together in an integrated way. So I'm kind of really into this idea at the moment. And it just spoke to me what you were saying there of like, it's okay to do things in a variety of different ways. It's okay to change your mind about something or try this or try that and not have to settle, not have to come to some point of arrival. In fact, it gives you access to greater creativity, greater intuition when you're not restrained by trying to follow a rigid method. You actually become a better coach or a better speaker or a better writer when you're not restrained by the word should. Yeah. It's more improv. And when you've got the freedom of improv, you're open to intuition. And a lot of people underrate the power of intuition and how creative it is. And they stay locked down trying to do what they feel they should be doing instead of opening up to the creative energy of the entire universe, which mm. is, which wants to flow through us, wants to use our brain as an instrument of divine universal creativity that wants to be used. And we try to shut it down and block it off and make it correct and make it be the way it should be. And we block creativity when we do that. Mm. You know, that so speaks to me what you're saying there, because, you know, wh whatever the method is, as soon as somebody is bound by method or they're bound by some set of rules and they cannot allow for intuition or creativity. Like I used to think, well, I've got to, you know, stick to my method. And I'd find myself telling a client a story about something that happened yesterday or, or, mm -hmm. or whatever, because it seemed pertinent. And I used to feel like, am I just, is my coaching entirely dictated by where I'm at in my life right now? You know, is it all about me? And I kind of feel bad about that. But then I kind of shifted to this point of going, do you know what? What if all of this, everything that's unfolding is just for us, for me, for the client, for everything? What if it happens now? Because that's how it's meant to be. You know, we're just dancing with it, dancing with that creative flow. So I really like what you're talking about there of being free to fully create with everything that's unfolding in the universe through you, through the client, through all that's happening. And I think that's a wonderful place to be able to coach from. I think I've only got there myself recently and I did so by quitting coaching and doing change work, which I quit about a year ago uh, mm. and I intended to quit for good. And then once I quit and said, I'm not doing this anymore, it kind of came, it, it, it started following me and came back to me, but it, I came back to it with a loose grip. Without the rules, without the idea that I had to be doing a particular thing in some particular way. And I love it more than I ever have now because I let go and I allowed it to come back to me, if that makes sense, without any rules great. or anything at all. That's great. That expands your power when you do that. And the fundamentals you already know, certain ways of coaching, they'll still be there when appropriate. They won't mm. go away. Um, so no, you're so, not, yeah, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I used to have this sort of thing and it's just, it's a ridiculous thing. I mean, we make up these stories in our minds that say, this is how it should be. I used to have this sort of thing where I would feel bad that I'd learned something and I wasn't using it. Yeah. It's a crazy thing instead of going, well, you know what? So what if I never use it again? Maybe I'll use it 50 times next week, or maybe I'll never use it again. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's sort of. It's a freeing thing. 
I've got a couple of students I saw recently who've been learning stuff from me for years. They said, you know, you seem really different, James, recently. I said, well, it's because I'm a broken man. And they're like, well, what are, you, what are you talking about? I said, no, honestly, I'm like, I'm, I'm broken. I'm like, the, the me that wants to control anything is kind of broken. And of course, maybe the me that wants to control will rise up from time to time. But there's something a lot more freeing about that. And I, I, I know that's a big thing that's important for you is creation and being free to create and flow with. And I think I probably didn't get that as fully as you were hoping to communicate that to me back, uh, back when we were working together. But I can really appreciate it deeply now. Yeah. And your use of everyday situations is very powerful. Because most people try to only use important classical type examples for things, and they don't land as well with a client. And the freedom to use your own life's experience as examples of things for a client, they land much more powerfully. People will listen to your experience. And the minute they think they're listening to your theories about things, they go to sleep. They're like, oh, I don't know if I agree with that theory. But if you talk about yesterday, you went to feed your dog and he was missing and you went and then it's some little thing like that. They will listen deeply because you're talking about experience. You're speaking from what really happened in the real world. And that is powerful. Hmm. Yeah, I, it amuses me that you can buy these books full of coaching metaphors, you know, stories yeah, that you can tell somebody, some other coach or, you know, and it, they can be some great stories, but they're not, they're not alive stories. They're not personally alive stories. Right. And it seems to me that there's aliveness everywhere. I think the creative process is a really interesting thing wherever you apply it. I mean, I used to write songs as well. I'd say write songs. I didn't write them. I had a home studio. I can't write music, you know, and I'd have a sense. Like I want to, I've got, oh, I'd love to make a song that's like this. that has got this kind of feel to it, this, or I'd get some idea and I'd start playing with it. And then serendipity would intervene. Something odd would happen. Maybe I'd make a mistake. But, oh, that's interesting. You know, mm -hmm. and oh, actually, I've got an idea that could go with that mistake, and then it fits in, and it's being able to create with what comes up. And I think that that's that's a key to all creative arts. Nobody really, they might have a sense of the painting they want to paint, but nobody has it exactly because they have to engage in the unfolding, what comes through in the process, in order to bring that to the outcome. And I think that's a really interesting way to do life as well. It's like if, if life is just a series of serendipitous things that you can create with, what can I create with this? How does that fit with that? Oh, how does that align with that? You know, you kind of create forward with it. And for me, I love that way of living, but going back to your testing versus trusting distinction, that's a hard way of living to trust, but to test can be incredible fun and so much can unfold out of that. You know, um, my wife, Kathy and I have been married 25 years and, oh, we dated for 10 years. Now that's an absurdly, absurd example of testing rather than trusting. But most people 
rush into a relationship and think, oh, I, I guess I have to trust that this is really the one for me and that'll work out. And they don't give it enough time. People try to enroll a client and they ask the client to trust that our working together will have benefit for you. And the client doesn't know how to trust that. Hmm. And so I like to give a potential client time with me, enough time with me prior to choosing whether to work with me or not. And that allows them to, to be testing instead of trying to trust that being with this guy is going to be worth the money. Yeah. And for you, I think, I mean, you've got all these audios that you've recorded and you've yeah. got uh, books and this kind of thing. I've got a fair amount of stuff out there in the world. Most of the time when people come to me for coaching via my website, via my online presence, they've already tested me. Yeah. Yeah. That's a yeah. form of testing. Yes. Yeah. You know, because I've shared something with them and this is something I got from you. Like I put YouTube videos out and I put little bits of communication out, this kind of thing. But I have a simple aim. It's like there's, I, I want to create a mind shift with this. And that's a term I got from you, actually. It's just the central thing. I've got this book for a long time, and I've been reading it again here. But that idea of a mind shift, if you can create a mind shift in somebody, a moment where they go, and they're seeing differently. Mm -hmm. And that different seeing creates a different possibility. To me, the people that arrive for coaching from me, they've already got something. They've already... Yeah. So I'm not there in the position of having to convince them that it would be a good idea to work with me. And I have to say, I think that's a, it, it never starts off well working with a client if you've had to convince them to work. Yes. No, it doesn't. You know, and it's not fun, not fun for you, not fun for the client knowing I'm being sold to, I'm being convinced, I'm being talked into something. Not fun for either one is not a good way to grow a business. You want to let them, in whatever medium you can do it, let them have enough exposure to the work you do and the content of your work and the way it works and who you are. Let them get enough of that to make a decision based on that, not based on trust. Mm. And I think this, again, you know, I learned this from you greatly as well, because coming from the world of NLP, NLP's got lots of processes, right? You do this, this, then this, then this, then this. You take somebody through a series of experiences. That's great. You can sit down with a client. You can do that kind of stuff. You can't reach out into the world with that. But when you start to focus instead on using your language and communication to create a distinction, to create a mind shift, to, to create a shift in seeing, that can extend out. That can be part of a conversation with the world. So I, I often find when I'm working with coaches, consultants, hypnotherapists, this kind of thing, I'm often encouraging them to step away from processes, you know, and to start to create different ways of seeing with their words and their language that they can reach out, they can have a conversation with the world with, because then you avoid that unpleasant situation of having to convince people. Yeah. And going back to your point about listening, how somebody is receiving or hearing, I think that once you're in the mode of convincing, you've already ruined that listening. Yes. I meant to follow up with you when you talk about that idea of how people hear what you're saying. You were saying like, oh, oh, when I was 
working with you, I was keen. I was keen. I was like, I want to get everything that I can download from this guy. I want to get these shifts in seeing. No question about it. But my assumption is you're not entirely just relying on people with the right kind of listening showing up. I mean, there's, there's more in your skill as a communicator than just going, well, you know, if they're listening, great. And if they're not, they're not. There are things you're doing to create that listening, to encourage yes. that listening. Is that yes. anything that you've got any explicit thoughts about, or is it just something that's intuitive for you? Well, the key thing for that is safety. I want, as the relationship begins, my, my first objective is for people to feel safe and secure and relaxed in the relationship. Hmm. So it doesn't feel like they're expressing a fear will have me judge them as being cowardly. The fear of judgment stops people from really opening up and letting you know what they want to change. Hmm. So to be explicit, one good way to do that is to share your own. So when someone has an issue, I always have some parallel yeah, tell me about it. I, I, I feel that too, or I, I had that, I had a relationship that went south. I did the same thing, or I hear you that, and I want them to see that their issues are not unique to them. Hmm. They are common. Someone says, I'm having a problem with procrastination. And I say, every one of my clients has that problem. So you're not the only one. Hmm. They say, oh, really? Cause I thought it was unique to me and I thought I have all these secret flaws that I try to cover up or I try to keep people from noticing. And when they see, oh, other people have the same, you, mm -hmm. it's a human thing. It's not about you. It's never about you. It's, it's just a human, we human beings get conditioned, have these really ineffective ways of interacting with the world. and. And it's very common and normal. And it's like when you go to the doctor and say, I have an uh, infection or a stomach virus or something. And he says, yeah, that's really going around right now. Hmm. All of a sudden you kind of relax like, oh, okay. So this isn't something that only my body is producing. And I'm going to die. And no, no, that's going around. Um, this antibiotic usually takes care of it. So we'll, we'll do that and we'll see how it works. And the commonality is an explicit way to get people to open their mind. So it's not just me mm. and my own shared experience, which is easy. I'm, I made such a mess in my life. People say, well, easier for you. I don't, I haven't failed as much as you have. Well, yeah, that's, uh, I'm sorry. You're jealous of that. Uh, but yeah, it's true. I've got all kinds of examples and even present day examples. Yeah. Like I'm not doing that well myself. So let's talk about what we're going to do about it. That kind of thing opens the mind and has people after a while trusting that this guy is not judging me. There's no judgment over there. And without judgment, with unconditional positive regard for that person. I have unconditional positive regard for you. 
that opens their mind to, okay, then it's okay to share anything. You know, there's a, a thing that I do because I, I work with these military vets and they've often seen uh, some evidence-based practitioner and, you know, they only come to the organization I work with when everything else hasn't worked, usually. They've done the evidence-based stuff. But they come in and I always say, look, I'm not a counselor. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. My role here is coach. And I say what that really means is I know a thing or two about how minds work. Maybe I've got something that can help you out. So I don't play like this high status. And I think this is true of you as well. You're not playing high status. It's like playing one across rather than one up with somebody. But I, I'll often say, because I'm not a psychiatrist, I say, look, I don't do diagnosis, but I, I will give you one diagnosis. That's human being. And that to me, it is the truth because everything that they're experiencing, everything they're struggling, it's normal stuff. A lot of them come in, they go, I've got PTSD, I've got a diagnosis, and they think that their brain is damaged somehow. They have a healthy, adaptive mammalian brain that has learned from some extreme experiences to respond in a certain way. That's, that's healthy. That's what a healthy brain does. You know, you just throw a tap on a stove, it burns its pores. It's cautious about that stove afterwards. You know, so I think that's such a powerful thing. And, and I really get that from you is that that sort of one across rather than one up and the, and recognizing and honoring the humanness of all experience. We're all human beings here together. So I can really see how that, uh, opens people up. Another thing that I found, I discovered this by chance. I end up doing this a lot because I build myself sometimes as a change work guy, people come in to make a change explicitly, right? I'm going, I want to change this thing. And they might come in and they're all kind of breaths up here and the shoulders are up and they're. Uh, and I say, you know, there's no rule in the universe that says you have to change anything here today. And they go, now the crazy paradox is, of course, they've come in saying, I want to change something, but change can be a scary thing. And like, if they think as soon as there's permission to not change in the mix, as soon as there's that freedom there, uh, everything just kind of like can relax and unfold in a much more organic and natural way. Uh, so I don't know if that's kind of relates to the, the same sort of way that you hold this in your mind. Oh, hang on, Steve, where have you gone? You've, you've become muted somehow. Am I back? You are back. Wonderful. Okay. Yeah, that is the same thing. It is allowing a person to be more and more open with you, more receptive. Their listening relaxes. Anytime you relax, you expand. You become more creative if you're more open to new ideas and taking the pressure off, which is your system of, you don't have to change any of this. Really you're doing, you're getting along. And if you want to change, we can explore it, but that takes the pressure off. Mm. We put pressure on ourselves by saying, my gosh, I've got to change this. This is killing me. And we think somehow the severity of our desire to change is extremely important. I can be mildly interested in changing and make a wonderful change. Hmm. People think I've got to wait until I'm totally fed up. And people have arguments with their family members only after they've melted down and gotten so angry and so fed up that now they're going to talk about this issue. So now it's coming from anger. And the other person gets defensive in the face of anger. And that conversation is not good. Mm. 
Yeah, I like what you do with people. I think I think it's very wise. So that's interesting. You're saying that you know people can make a change when they have a mild interest. Sure. You know, because there's that story. Some people say, "Well, you've got to hit rock bottom. You've got to hit the skids, and then finally come to that realization and turn your life around, and all of this kind of thing." And, and maybe that is the catalyst for many people. Yeah. But um, well, what are your views on what's possible? for change, for people to change their experience of life, the experience of themselves, their way of being, their way of engaging. What, what's your views on what's possible for people? Well, I dismiss my views because there's so much evidence, especially in neuroscience right now. The brain changes, personalities change. The capacity of people to change is off the charts. And our former belief that we were shaped somehow hardwired either genetically to be a certain kind of person or in childhood where it got cast in stone that you're going to always be an introvert or you're going to always be bad with people or you're always going to be a kind of bully who doesn't listen. That has been disproven. The work in positive psychology, Learned Optimism by Dr. Martin Seligman, he did all the work, the, the scientific studies, and he proved scientifically that people with pessimistic thought habits and patterns hmm. could become an optimist, a, a total optimist, through changing their thought patterns creatively and intelligently that was not locked in previously we and people still do it they labeled people a certain way like he's a pessimist he's an optimist she's a debbie downer he's glooming doom he's a positive human being and we attach permanent labels and children they're labeled by their parents quite often you're lazy, you're cowardly, you don't, you don't finish anything. And when they say that, we believe it. Mm. Okay. And why haven't you cleaned your room? Well, you told me a few months ago, I don't finish anything. And that, and you said it as if that's my identity, mm. that that's me. Not like you didn't finish that one thing. That's more accurate, but yeah. they're not accurate. They like labeling people, and that shuts down people's belief that they can change. But if you study neuroscience or you read the accounts of people who've had conversions or people who changed, I have great admiration for hypnosis and NLP, and you've seen it in hypnosis, NLP, and you've seen it in coaching and in being a change agent. People change radically. Mm -hmm. Amazingly, they just don't know they can. That's the only problem. They mm. don't know it's available. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, I, I often look at things through the lens of hypnosis. Everybody's hypnotized. You know, to, they're yeah. hypnotized by some story of self. They're hypnotized by the, yeah. what's possible for me. And um, there's an idea from, I first learned from Tai Chi, from Taoism, is in order to profit, you must invest in loss. You know, so what is it that you need to lose here? What is it that, what's the trance you need to fall out of in order to fall into more of what's possible for you? 
And of course, people get caught up in these trances, these ideas. It seems so real. It seems so true. I think that's one of the things that the three principles stuff's really good for. Yeah. Yeah. It's helping people to free themselves from the stories. I do think it lacks that, what I call that white path side. It's like, so now what? You know, what, what's possible beyond that? Um, but, but yeah, I think but it is. One thing about 3P, it doesn't pretend to be now what it is, uh, it has you arrive at who you really are. Mm. And now what is up to you? It's not a program for now what it's a program to free you from the tyranny of your own thinking. And yeah. the now what is up to you. There are other now what programs that are great. Yes. Once, yeah. once you're ready to create something, how do you get clients? Read a book called The Prosperous Coach or How to Get Clients. Mm. How to Use Hypnotism Without Trance. Read James's book. So the now what is all out there. The 3P is great for what it does. Yeah, it really does. It's, it's phenomenal stuff. I like 3P. I like stuff like Sedona, which is, I think, really good yeah. and fits quite well. I know a lot of the 3P purists will go, no, you don't need to do anything, so you shouldn't use that Sedona method and all of that. But to me, they they dovetail beautifully. And like, say, the work of Byron Katie and these things, they, they all very much complement each other. For me, that's it's all the stuff that's about falling out of the restrictive trance the trance of limitation that you might be in. And to me, there's that other side as well, which is the creating of a, of a new trance, which doesn't mean you want to live in that trance or be the victim of that trance, but it can have a high degree of functionality because it creates a certain engagement. And for me, that's what the distinction stuff does. It sort of creates these, these trances of engagement that, are, that have a high degree of utility. Um, yes. So I'm really into that idea of falling out of trances and falling into new trances and playing with that creative dynamic. There's the old uh, alchemical idea of solve a coagula. You know, you dissolve and you reform and you can play with that infinitely in self-transformation. And the new trance is conscious and the old trance is unconscious. People are unconscious to how the culture and the media society hypnotizes them. Hmm. And the way of thinking, they think these are original thoughts of mine. I should this, I should do that. I should make as much money as I possibly can. Mm. I have so many people who say to me, I should raise my fees. I know I can make more money. Well, do you want to and do you need to? What do you mean? If I if I can make more, I should. I yeah. was raised that way. All right. That's what all the other high achievers tell me. You need to maximize your income and make as much as you possibly can. And well, no, that's, you could take that path, but that's optional. Mm. You don't have to, I had a course, the ACS course for coaches and people were telling me it would fill very fast near the end. People would say, you could raise your fee on this. Other mm. courses are charging more and they're not as good. And I said, yeah, I know I could. Well, mm. why don't you? That's foolish. Yeah. No, I like this fee. I'll keep it the way it is for no reason. I don't have a reason. I don't have to defend to justify everything I do, especially mm. to my critic. You know, Steve, somebody said to me once, a coach who I'd hired once upon a time, I put a program out and, um, it was the second program I'd ever put out. And he said to me, and I think the, I was charging something like. 
pounds, UK pounds for it. And it was just a little, uh, it was a DVD program back at the time, it had a couple of DVDs in it. And I, he said to me, is this all you think you're worth? He said, mm. and like at the time I did, it really floored me. It's like, oh, am I, you know, and it occurred to me after, it's got nothing to do with what I think I'm worth. Yeah. It's just to do with a choice that I made about what I want to make this information available for. That's it. it. It's not about what I think I'm worth. But for a moment, he hypnotized me into believing that, that I had yeah, some yeah. sort of lack of self-worth or something going on and that I should strive to have these higher fees. I got caught in that loop for a long time to kind of like, oh, I ought to put my fees up. I ought to have a successful business. Of course, the assumption being I don't have a successful business, but you know, I live in quite a nice place. My family do all right. We don't drive luxury cars, but we have a comfortable life and I have a phenomenal amount of personal freedom. Somebody said to me once, they said, James, I was very flattered. They said, why aren't you as big as Anthony Robbins? Like, you know, your stuff's really great. I'm like, well, I'm really flattered, but the last thing I'd want to do is be on it. Go, 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 go. Like Anthony Robbins probably is all the time. Like yeah. I won his life. I'd, great for him, great for Tony. But for me, that level of high fire intensity all the time, I, I like a bit of space. I like to chill out. I like to explore different things in life. I don't want to be go, go, go all the time. That's been a hard thing for me to release myself from. And I know in the coaching world, so many people are going for the high ticket program, the high-end fees, all of this. And I, I know people that do that and they are stressing a lot of the time business. Oh yeah. You know, uh, I heard a program you, you talked about doing heroics, I think, you know, they're always doing the heroics to get, get the big thing. It's just, you know, it'd be nice to relax sometimes. I just spent the last two years, I've still been coaching people and stuff, but I've been doing martial arts. It doesn't make me any money. Doing a lot of martial arts. I love martial arts. It doesn't make me any money. I'm extremely Thankful that I've managed to create a lifestyle where I can burn up tons of my time doing martial arts. Don't you think, I don't know about you, I don't know how it was in the States, Steve, but the kind of whole pandemic thing, I think had a lot of people look at the world and go, huh? You know, yeah. um, yes. to me, it was like, oh, everybody told me that this has to go, 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 go. And we can't just turn things off. And then like, suddenly they turn off the whole economy for a bit. It's just like, oh, so you can turn it off. Yes. You know, and I think a lot of people just after the pandemic and after the lockdowns over here in the UK, a lot of people just didn't go back to work. There's a whole load of people. Is that true in the States as well? I don't know if that's yes, a, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they like, actually, I don't have to, or they find something else to do, or you just completely right. change people's view of things. Anyway, Steve, I'm aware that, you know, I've had, a, I've had you here for over an hour now, and uh, I really do appreciate you coming on and, and sharing this stuff. and. My hope is, as I say that, I can hear you saying hope is not a strategy, but my hope is that people will listen to this and get at least a bit of a flavor of what you have to offer. You have many books out there in the world. Some of them have had a big impact on me, Time Warrior and Wealth Warrior. They had a big impact on me and this one as well. And your audios have been fantastic. Is there anything that you want to let people know about? that they can, they can get more of your goodness somehow, or are you just, no, no, I've had more than enough people access my products. If they're interested, they can go to my website at stevechandler.com. Mm. And I, I have for the people who are listening, who are coaches, I send out a free coaching tip every week. If you want to subscribe, it doesn't cost anything. Uh, 
but no, nothing in particular. Okay. Uh, I'm very happy with the way things are going. Well, I thought I'd ask. No, well, thank you. Thank you. I had a sense. Um, wonderful stuff. Thank you very much, Steve, for being here. I really do appreciate it. You're very welcome, James, and congratulations on the great career you've created for yourself. I really, really admire you. So you're retiring from coaching this year? Does that mean yes. you haven't retired yet? No, but I, I will be finished with it by the end of this year because I will be turning 80 this year. Right. And that's not a good brand to be an 80-year-old motivator. Uh, not good branding. Yeah, maybe, but it's good branding for a wise man. Well, for Merlin, maybe. Yeah. Merlin right, was ageless. I really want to write full-time. That's my primary motivation. I want to write more because I'm really enjoying coaching.